Well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody. And if you're new with us, welcome. Um, we are currently working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And I promise you we will get there again. Because we're going to be entering into a great chapter, chapter 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer, where we are privileged, and I say that with reverence, we are privileged to be able to peek behind the veil into the holy of holies, to hear the, the son pray a very intimate prayer for his father. And you may not realize this, but you and I were included. So we'll get to that. Uh, in a couple weeks. I say, what do you mean? Well, uh, I'd like to put that on hold for a couple of weeks and, um, and do a two-part uh, special message on God's Word. I think it's an important way to start the new year, a message on God's Word, right? Uh, I think that most of you realize that God's Word has come under attack like never before in our nation's history. I mean, I've never seen anything like it, and I've seen a lot in 40-plus years of ministry, but... Um, I believe that God's word has come under the greatest attack in the history of our country, but it's not just in America. It's all countries that have a Judeo-Christian heritage. God's word is under attack. The devil has always attacked God's word from the very beginning. We read in Genesis 3 that as far back as the Garden of Eden, when um, Satan took the form of a serpent, he first tried to get Eve to doubt what God had said. He said, has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The Hebrew in that verse could be translated, so God has said, has he? As Satan subtly sows doubt into Eve's mind as to what God had said. One author put it well, he said, and I quote, Here we have the first question in the Bible posing the first dilemma in human history. There were no dilemmas before this one. The question is carefully crafted by Satan to start Eve down the path of doubting God's word. He knows that doubting the word of God will inevitably lead to rejecting the will of God and then doing whatever seems right in her own eyes. And so for the first time in human history, the most deadly spiritual force was covertly smuggled into the world. What is it? The assumption that what God said is subject to human judgment, end quote. But today the attacks have become, I think, far more blatant than they were in the Garden of Eden. They've become far more blatant than you might say in your face, as Satan seems to have thrown up all subtly today and has now adopted a direct frontal assault approach in his attacks on the Word of God. You say, what am I referring to? What are you referring to in particular? Well, maybe you've heard about uh, a new law that went into effect yesterday, January 8th, in Canada. Uh, this new Canadian law essentially states that any teaching, and let's be honest, uh, they know what they're doing. Uh, the target of this law is no doubt against the teaching of God's Word, as presented in the Bible. But this new Canadian law essentially states that any, any teaching that says that people are born genetic males and genetic females and that that is a settled fact is a myth, is a myth. The Canadian law further states that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression 
that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth and are therefore to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions is now illegal in Canada. It's coming here, though. It's already started trickling down even before this law went into effect yesterday. It goes on, and this is their, their, you know, whatever they're trying to do today, there's always a bigger goal for tomorrow. Furthermore, the law goes on to basically state that the belief that God has mandated in marriage, that only one genetic, and I use the word genetic, because the idea is, in, and I've counseled pastors to change their church constitutions, to not just say we believe in the marriage of one man and one woman, if a man believes he's a woman and then marries a woman, our constitutions can basically be used to justify that. So you have to put the word genetic in there. That's why I'm using it. But the idea that God has mandated in marriage that only one genetic male and one genetic female can be legally married in the eyes of God or else the couple is living in sin will now be seen as a myth and illegal in Canada, but that's coming here as well. The new Canadian law is a direct assault on the validity of the Bible and blatantly contradicts that which has been the bedrock of the Judeo-Christian faith, not to mention the foundation for Western civilization for centuries. Pastor John MacArthur explained in an open letter to Christian pastors across America that, and I'm quoting, the Canadian law is an attack on speech and faith under the guise of banning so-called conversion therapy. That agenda, agenda, that agenda already has gotten a start in the United States with several states that have banned it. Essentially, the law would restrict any speech or belief that would counsel individuals, especially youth, against adopting a homosexual or transgender lifestyle. In, quote. So in other words, if somebody in our youth group will say is, uh, is a young man wrestling with his, his um, uh, sexuality and he's thinking, well, m maybe I actually was born gay or maybe uh, I, I, I'm really a woman and, in a man's body. And one of the pastors was to counsel that person from the word of God as to why that isn't true. This is the devil playing with people's minds and so on. That would be now illegal uh, in Canada, and it's already become illegal in certain states in the United States. In an article entitled, John MacArthur to Pastors Fight Government Claim That Biblical Moral Standards Are a Myth, the article goes on to state, I'm quoting, a prominent American Christian leader, John MacArthur of Grace Community Church in California, has issued a call to American church pastors to join in a fight being waged by their Canadian brothers, pastors in Canada. MacArthur wants American Christian church leaders to join with Canadian pastors on January 16th to preach on God's plan for human sexuality. MacArthur includes a call to repent of sin and turn to Jesus Christ as the first step of Christian discipleship, end quote. So I will be joining uh, in with pastors all across America next week, January 16th, in standing up for the word of God by proclaiming God's design 
for human sexuality. Please pray. Please pray. But for this morning, I thought it would uh, be, rather than get into John and then get out for a week and then get back in, um, for this morning, I thought it would be, uh, I would present an introductory message on the Word of God entitled, God's Word, the Treasure of Truth. Let me begin by saying you will never benefit from the Word of God if you don't appreciate it and if you don't value it. Why should we value the Bible? I'll give you three reasons that will lead to the fourth conclusion. Why should we value the Bible? Because first of all, it is a timeless book. First of all, it is a timeless book. I'm going to share a lot of scriptures with you, um, and we don't have time to turn to them, so you can write down the reference. Many of them come out of Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible and is all about God's Word. And when you study Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, a variety of words are used to represent God's Word. Uh, Your statutes and testimonies and law and all of that is just different ways of saying the same thing, God's Word. Just so you know that, right? We should value the Bible, first of all, because it's a timeless book. Psalm 119, verse 89, forever. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Aren't you glad that you've never walked into a Christian bookstore and seen a whole shelf of Bibles with the, with the label on them, new, updated, and expanded? I say that cautiously because they're out there, actually. Okay? They're out there. Uh, There are people that have given themselves over to deleting some passages in the Bible, rewording things so that they reflect a certain opinion and so on. But overall, you get what I'm saying, right? The true Word of God, what man does to the Word, that's not what I'm talking about. What God says about His Word, the Bible says, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. What man does with it on the earth, that's between, he'll stand before God and give an account. Okay, but God, his word is complete. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Okay? Psalm 119, verse 152. Concerning your testimonies, your word, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. Forever. Psalm 119, verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth. Not most of it, right? I mean, if I invite you over for dinner, right? Nice big uh, three or four course meal, uh, starting off with maybe turkey for the holidays. If I, and I said to you when you sat down, most of this meal is, is pure. There, there's just a little poison that slipped in when I was cooked, but most of it was good. It's good. Nobody would eat right? People are telling us that, you know, most of God's word, the Bible is good, but there are some places we can't trust. What are you saying? They're poison? They're, they're, they're going to be bad for us if we take them in? Well, they're out there. People are saying this. But God says the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Well, Isn't that what Peter said Uh, in his first epistle, chapter 1? He said, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains or endures forever. In other words, the word of God is timeless. There is no expiration date on God's word, right? It endures forever because like God, it, it has come from God who is eternal. Therefore, God's word as an expression of his nature, an extension of himself, endures forever. You know, most of you have heard the name Voltaire. Voltaire. Voltaire was uh, the famous French Enlightenment writer, historian, philosopher, and atheist. I mean, he was a vociferous critic of Christianity. And he had a, he had a sharp, cutting wit where he could phrase things in such a way as he would just demoralize Christians, and he enjoyed it, just enjoyed it, ridiculing Christians and the Christian faith. Well, he died in 1778, but before he died, he made that infamous prediction that many of us have come to know. He predicted that within 100 years of his death, the Bible would disappear from the earth. Now, he was a product of the Enlightenment. And during that period, people felt that mankind was evolving uh, out of all the superstition and uh, darkness of the past. We were becoming enlightened in areas of medicine and uh, science and so on. And because Voltaire and many uh, like him believed that religion was simply the ignorance of the masses, their superstition, and, uh, and the fact that they were uh, basically ignorant people, and that gave rise to religion and the Bible. Well, as mankind has gotten more and more enlightened and will continue to be enlightened, eventually within 100 years of my death, he believed and stated it clearly, uh, the Bible will no longer be, it will no longer be uh, viewed as being of God. It, it will go by the wayside. If you've ever doubted that God has a sense of humor. Here's one of those examples where I think he does. Because within 50 years of making that prediction, that within 100 years of my death, the Bible will cease to exist, disappear from the earth. 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society bought Voltaire's house and used his own printing press to produce thousands and thousands of copies of the Bible to give out for distribution. It's like, you know, it's like somebody wrote in the bathroom wall, a stall, God is dead, sign Nietzsche. Somebody else wrote underneath it, Nietzsche is dead, sign God. You know? 100 years of my death, God's going to be gone. God said, oh, really? And proved the atheists wrong. Well, it brings to mind the famous statement by H.L. Hastings on the subject. Hastings wrote, and I quote, Infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels with all their assaults make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his domain, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Hastings goes on, So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book 
had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die and the book still lives, end quote. So, first of all, we should value the Bible because God's Word is a, it's a timeless book. Secondly, we should value the Bible because it's a truthful book. A truthful book. Psalm 119, verse 142. The psalmist said, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Your Word is truth. Psalm 119, verse 151, You are nearer, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Psalm 119, verse 160, The entirety of your word is truth. And of course, what the Lord Jesus said, which we'll study in a few weeks out of John 17, when he was praying his high priestly prayer to the Father before the cross, he said, Father, Sanctify my disciples by your truth. Your word is truth. As I said earlier, today the word of God has come under attack like never before, which includes attacks from inside the walls of the church. It's a crazy time we're living in. I mean, the world has always attacked the word of God, always, right? But today you have the church has been over many years sown with many tares. So you have uh, liberal churches and pastors. Many of them are not even saved. Most of them, I think. Because they don't hold, they don't believe in the, in the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, the virgin birth, uh, Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. Uh, just there's the basics, uh, that he was sinless in his humanity. So you have across America and, and all across the Western world churches, cathedrals, that are run by pastors, some men, some women, who are not even saved. They're wolves masquerading as shepherds. They are wearing sheep's clothing. Now, when I say that, they're running these liberal churches, and not, they're not saved. Most of the people, if not all the people in those churches, are also not saved. So how can you be sure? There is no way a spirit-filled Christian can spend more than two minutes in a church like that listening to an unsaved pastor and not know it immediately in their spirit and walk right out the door. So, and I, and I know you would know that. You would, you would sense that immediately as people who know the word and are filled with the spirit. You would know. You know life when you hear it. I mean, if I'm just te read, if I just read the Bible to you, I mean, you sense the power there in God's word. But especially if a man is handling God's word that's still dead in trespasses and sins, you would immediately know that. So uh, we have in the church liberal pastors and theologians. Now there are there is a segment of the church who I believe many of whom are saved. Uh, they attack the Bible, but in a different way. What do you mean? Well, there are charismatic churches, many of them. They are loaded with people. Yeah, there's a lot probably that aren't saved, but I've met many charismatics that are saved. But the, those churches don't stress the Word of God like they should. In fact, Paul says uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that in the last days, 
many in the church would no longer want to hear sound doctrine from the word of God, but would instead gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears and basically tell them what they want to hear. What do they want to hear? How I can be wealthy, how I can be healthy, how my business will prosper, how I can drive the nicest car in town, live in the, 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 you know, the, the nicest house in town, and so on. They're carnally minded. I don't know their hearts. I've met many that I know love the Lord. They're just getting bad teaching and they're buying into it because their mind is focused more on things of the earth than, as Paul said, elevating them and focusing your thoughts on the things of God in heaven. But when I talk about the blatant assault against God's word coming from within the walls of the church, I'm talking about those who are liberals, pastors, and so on. And then, of course, you have the cults that... Uh, call themselves Christian denominations, the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. We, uh, and they didn't get their start until about 175 years ago. So we're seeing a direct frontal assault against the truth of God's word in a way we've never seen before in the last couple hundred years at least. And it's all setting the groundwork to weaken people's faith in the word of God so that Satan can present the ultimate lie, the Antichrist, in his kingdom. But one of these liberal pastors, let's focus on them just for a second more. Yes, they're attacking God's word through a direct frontal assault. How are they doing that? Well, they're telling people, their congregations, that the Bible is really nothing more than a collection of man-made myths, allegories, um, you know, stories, and, 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 and moral principles, all brought together under one cover, which you know we can learn some principles from, but... It is not to be taken as inerrant divine truth. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. Passage you all know, but it fits right now with what we're going through. In 2 Timothy 3, starting with verse 16, Paul the Apostle writing to a young pastor named Timothy, Starts off by saying in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Not most of it, not, you know, whatever. It's all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, woman of God, of course, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We've talked about this. I won't belabor it but the word translated inspiration is the greek word the anustas the anustas literally means god breathed god breathed the idea is that all scripture has been breathed out by god god breathed that's an interesting way for paul to have put that because it reminds us of genesis chapter 2 verse 7 which reads and the lord god formed formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the breath of God, and man became a living being, a living being. And the idea is that God breathed life into the scriptures the same way he basically breathed life into Adam. Even as the book of Hebrews states, well, Paul said in, uh, in um, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God breathed. I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, who went on to say in chapter 4, verse 12, of Hebrews that all that all scripture is living and powerful right the word of God is living and powerful well because it's God breathed is God breathed life into Adam 
So he breathed life into the scriptures. What you have in your lap this morning is a supernatural book. It has life in it. It has life. I remember um, uh, some guy on, on TV was talking. He was a Christian, Christian leader, a Christian teacher. Um, I don't think he was a pastor, but he was uh, you know, uh, very much into his church as a teacher and leader. And after 9-11 happened, we didn't really know too much about Islam at that time, at least not the average American. So he wanted to know, well, what is this religion that would cause people to think they're serving God by killing innocents, right? And don't forget, a lot of kids died on 9-11. So he said, well, you know, he's a born-again Christian. He reads the Bible all the time, but decided he was going to take a summer, and he was going to read the Quran. And he said, I got to tell you, I, I spent all summer reading the Quran, and I got to tell you, it was the most dry, um, uninspiring, dead book I have ever read. So different from when I read the Bible. As I read it, I feel the life coming off the pages. As I read the words, it's not the ink and paper, of course. It's how God breathed life into these words that were arranged on the paper in such a way that it was God expressing his thoughts. And as we read it, we're really entering into the mind of God, the heart of God. We're merging with God, not in a metaphysical weird way, but just in the idea that we're, we're, we're thinking the thoughts. Of, whenever you read something, that's why you shouldn't be reading garbage. You're, you're melding, you have this kind of a mind meld with the author. You're thinking what he or she is thinking, which often comes from their heart, a fallen, corrupt heart. When you read the Word of God, it's pure. It's of God. And you're, you're coming together with God in a sense that you're thinking His thoughts. You're, you're experiencing what He has in His heart. That's healthy. That's transforming, as we're going to see in a moment. But the idea that God's Word is inspired. When the theologians talk about this, they describe the inspiration of God's word in these terms, verbal, plenary inspiration. Inspiration we've already covered. God breathed, right? But they claim, rightly so, that the inspiration of God's word is the verbal, plenary inspiration. What does that mean? Well, verbal inspiration simply means every word in Scripture is God-given. Every word. The idea is that every single word in the Bible is there because God wanted it there, all right? There, is, there are no exceptions. Several years ago, uh, Reader's Digest came out with a Bible. Well, it wasn't a Bible. They, they redid the Bible. I forgot what they called it, but what they basically did was they condensed it. might have been called the Condensed Bible. I forgot, right? And what they did was they took out a bunch of stuff they considered extraneous information. We don't need to know this. Take it out. Uh, we'll just get to the heart and the meat. You know, and uh, they even took out the verse in Revelation that said, if anyone takes away from the words prophecy of this, of this book, God's going to take away life, eternal life and so on. So they, they took that out because they didn't want to be dealing with that. But, but every word has been put in the Bible by God. Every word. There's no exceptions. Plenary, well, that simply means all parts of the Bible are uh, authoritative and inspired. Years ago, I was talking to a pastor from a particular Christian denomination. I'm not going to tell you the denomination because I'm not sure he was speaking for the whole group, but he said he was. He said, my denomination believes. All right? What do they believe? 
He said, we believe that when the Bible talks about spiritual things, it's inspired and inerrant. But whenever it talks about non-spiritual things like make scientific observations, it's prone to error. And that was really an olive branch to the scientific community by this denomination to say, look, we're not those ignorant Christians who don't believe in evolution. We believe in evolution, you know, and, and so that was their way of kind of, you know, when the Bible speaks on spiritual things, it's inspired when it doesn't because the Bible talks about God creating and now we know it didn't happen that way because we're, you know, we, we're very smart. We believe in evolution. Folks, can I just go on record and say this? Evolution is the dumbest thing that has ever come out of the mouth and hearts of so-called so smart people. And again, if you go back to Darwin, who got a lot of his stuff from Lyell, the whole idea was he set up, he didn't like the, the concept of hell. Darwin didn't, at least. And didn't want to think of his family and friends going to hell, so he decided to set out to develop a system that explained everything apart from God. Oh, that's really a great way to start down a road. Science means, you know, knowledge. Uh, you know, where you observe things and come, come away with then eventual uh, hypotheses, then theory, then fact, right? People have bought into evolution because they don't want to believe in God. Why don't they want to believe in God? Read Romans chapter 1, verse 18. They want to suppress the truth of God, which God has put in their hearts that God exists. They want to suppress that truth because they want to live unrighteously. Bottom line. Anyway, that's a different message. But didn't Jesus make the case for verbal plenary inspiration in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, where he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. All right, so we should value the Bible because, first of all, it's a timeless book. We should value it, number two, because it's a truthful book. We should value it, number three, because it's a transforming book. A transforming book. One of the most dramatic examples of the Bible's divine ability to transform lives, because it's of God. God is life. When John presented his gospel i think 53 times in john's gospel he talks about life eternal life life that only comes from god that's his whole gospel is built around the idea that god wants to impart life to people who have been born into this world dead in trespasses and sins and the only one who can impart life to the dead is god whether you're talking about physical dead or the spiritual dead god is the only source of life right and the Word of God has that transforming uh, power because it is emanated from God. And therefore, whoever takes it in, well, they also become uh, beneficiaries of the power to be saved and also then transformed through the Word of God. One of the most dramatic examples of the Bible's divine, divine ability to transform lives um, Involved the famous story of Mutiny on the Bounty. Mutiny on the... You've heard of this. Uh, true story from history, right? Um, one author said concerning this story... Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, Most of us have heard the story of the mutiny on the bounty, but few of us uh, have heard how the Bible played a very vital part in that historical event. 
He says the Bounty was a British ship which set sail from England in 1787 bound for the South Seas. The idea was that those on board would spend some time among the islands transplanting fruit-bearing and food-bearing trees and doing other things to make some of the islands more habitable. After 10 months of, 10 months of voyage, the Bounty arrived safely at the island of Tahiti. And for six months, the officers and the crew gave themselves to the duties placed upon them by their government. When the special task was completed, however, uh, and the order was given to embark again, the sailors rebelled. They had formed strong attachments to the native girls, and the climate and the ease of the South Sea Island life was much to their liking. The result was mutiny on the bounty. And the sailors placed Captain Bly and a few loyal uh, men adrift in an open boat. Captain Bly, in an almost miraculous fashion, survived the ordeal, was rescued, and eventually arrived home in London to tell his story. The expedition, an expedition was launched to punish the mutineers. In due time, 14 of them were captured and paid the penalty under British law. But nine of the men had gone to another distant island called Pekarin Island. There they formed a colony. Perhaps there has never been a more degraded and debauched social life than that of that colony. They learned to distill whiskey from a native plant, and the whiskey, as usual, uh, along with other habits, led to their ruin. Disease and murder took the lives of all the native men and all but one of the white men named Alexander Smith. He found himself the only white man on an island surrounded by a crowd of women and half-breed children. Alexander Smith found a Bible among the possessions of a dead sailor. The book was new to him. He had never read it before. He sat down and read it through. He believed it, and he began to appropriate it. He wanted others to share in the benefits of this book, so he taught classes to the women and children as he read to them and taught them the scriptures. In 1808, 20 years after the mutiny on the bounty, a ship from Boston discovered the community on Pacaran Island. When the captain of the ship returned to America, he took news of the only mutineer to survive and, what, uh, and of what he called, quoting him, the most perfect Christian society he had ever seen. A miniature utopia was discovered. The people were living in decency, prosperity, harmony, and peace. There was nothing of crime, disease, immorality, insanity, or illiteracy. How was it accomplished? <laughs> by the reading, the believing, and the appropriating of the truth of the Word of God, end quote. Wow. Guys, the Bible has the power to transform lives, but only if it's read and applied. And so the Bible should be valued because, first of all, it's a timeless book. Secondly, because it's a truthful book. Thirdly, because it's a transforming book. And all that leads to the fact that the Bible is a treasured book. Psalm 119, verse 162. Psalmist said, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Psalm 119, verse 127. Therefore I love your commandments more than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Of course, Paul said in Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, all found in his word. How unsearchable are his judgments and how past finding out are his ways. 
Guys, the word of God is valuable. But it will only benefit you if you first of all treasure it, right? I mean, didn't Jesus say, uh, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be? We say we all love the Bible as Christians, yet we give it no time. And I fall into that category too. If you treasure something, you can't get enough of it, right? We need to ask God to give us a heart that treasures his word again. That's why I felt a message like this. It's just reminding most of you what you already know. But I think we need to be reminded once in a while of what we already know and believe. We said again, the word of God is valuable, but only if it, but it will only benefit you, if you benefit you if you treasure it, and it will only make your life rich if you obey it. A lot of people are playing games with the Bible. Vance Habner, the old Baptist preacher, said, and I quote, he said, I have read that years ago in that part of Africa where diamonds in the rough were plentiful, a traveler chanced on boys playing in the street. Closer investigation revealed that they were playing marbles with diamonds. He said, God forgive us today that we handle his treasures as though they were trifles and the coinage of the eternal as though it were play money. It is no time to play marbles with diamonds, end quote. It's no time to play games with God's word. Why don't we read the Bible more? We believe it's God's word. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. Maybe one of them that was found written on D.L. Moody's Bible, the cover. Here's what he said. He said, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. I just throw that out. What is keeping us from reading God's word like we should? It might not be sin. It might just be we're so busy, you know? I guess you can call putting something ahead of God's word sin in the sense that God should always come first, right? Guys, God's word is a treasure trove of great and precious promises and principles. Let me give you a little flavor of what I'm saying. We are saved by the word. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, James 1, verse 21. We are cleansed by the word. Ephesians 5, verse, I, these are up here. You can write them down if you want after service. We're cleansed by the word. Ephesians 5, 26, Psalm 119, verse 9. We're sanctified by the word. John 17, verse 17. Also, 1 Timothy 4, verse 6 tells us that. We are guided by the word. Psalm 119, verse 105. We're enlightened by the word. Psalm 19, verse 8. We are kept by the word. Psalm 17, verse 4. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. And I could go on and on. I'll let you run with that. I'll let you run with that. Listen, God's word is true. And the only thing that can save and sanctify a person, which is why the devil tries so hard to undermine and destroy it and has from the very beginning. God, Satan doesn't want anybody saved. If he can discredit God's word, right? And, and so what has he been doing for many years? Well, he's been, he's been pecking away at the foundation. Psalm 11, verse 3, 
If the foundation is destroyed, what can the righteous do? I mean, this attack against one of the most basic scientific principles that some people are born male and some people are born female. If that can come under, that's about as basic and foundational to Western civilization as it gets. If the devil has taken it upon himself to attack that, there's nothing that's off the table. We have to cherish God's word. Too many Christians today give God's word lip service. They don't really cherish it. They don't value it. They don't believe it holds the power to transform their lives. They'd rather go to a psychologist or a yoga class or a hypnosis class or some other thing that is exactly not what God would have them do because those things can impart power in life. God's word is living and powerful, right? But if we don't cherish it as believers, if we don't love it, if we don't value it, and seek to live our lives accordingly to it, nobody else is going to take it seriously either. Let me close with a true story. I've told you this story before, but uh, it fits, and I want to just quickly give it to you, and then we'll close. Let me end with a, with a true story that comes from the life of a man named Robert Dick Wilson, a man who truly treasured God's word. Robert Wilson was born in 1856. He graduated Princeton University at the age of 20 and then went on to get his Ph.D. He then did further postgraduate work in Germany for two years where he was exposed to the School of Higher Criticism. What is the School of Higher Criticism? It was and is a, a school, quote-unquote, of German liberal scholars whose whole mission in life was to attack the Bible at every turn, discredit it, undermine it, say it really wasn't trustworthy, that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. It was five different priests, P-Q-R-Z-Y. I forgot the letters, but, you know, and because there's differences in things. And, 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 and so uh, this is what Wilson, it was just going big guns uh, at the time. Wilson there was uh, in Germany. And uh, so after sitting through a class where a liberal professor or some professors of higher criticism were just ripping the Bible apart, primarily the Old Testament, just trying to shred it, ridicule it, pass it off as being ridiculous and foolish and, uh, and, uh, and uh, unhistorical and so untrustworthy, he was so brokenhearted, Robert Wilson, he loved the word. He went back to his dorm, knelt brokenhearted tears, went back to his dorm, knelt by his bed, and prayed this prayer. He was 25 years old at the time. He said, Lord, if you will give me another 45 years, I will devote the first 15 years to learning every language the Bible was written in. I will spend the next 15 years studying the Old Testament itself, and the last 15 years I will spend presenting my findings for the truthfulness of your word to anyone who will listen, I'll go to any place in the world, all right? Well, God answered Robert's prayer and gave him another 49 years, during which time, listen, he mastered 45 languages. When you talk about a brilliant mind, this guy is the Everest of brilliant minds. He mastered 45 languages. He not only became an expert in Hebrew and its kindred, kindred tongues, 
but he learned all the languages into which the scriptures had been translated down to the year A.D. 600. While he was still in college, he could read the New Testament in nine languages. He had memorized the entire New Testament in Hebrew along with portions of the Old Testament, and it was said he could recite the New Testament in Hebrew from memory without missing a single syllable. He studied the text of the Old Testament, looking at every consonant. Remember now, um, the Hebrew in the Old Testament had no vowels. It was all consonants. So he took the time to study every consonant in the Old Testament scriptures, 250,000 of them. He made a thorough scientific investigation of the, of the Old Testament text as compared with the writings, other writings of antiquity. How does it measure up against, you know, Homer's Iliad or Caesar's Gallic Wars or something to that effect, right? Have you ever done that study? Wow. Um, there's no match. The Bible is no equal. But he made a thorough scientific investigation of the Old Testament text as compared with the writing, other writings of antiquity. Dr. Wilson then spent his remaining years writing down and teaching the results of his long research. He became the leading professor at Princeton Theological Seminary where he spent many years defending the Bible against all comers. Nobody could debate him. He would wipe the floor with everybody. And what he did was he poured himself into the next generation. He made it his goal to, to, to teach young people, students, that came into the college with a strong Christian faith uh, a lot of Christians that come into to colleges today, their faith is destroyed in four years by liberal, godless professors who think they know everything, they know nothing. But back then, Wilson wanted to have these young people coming in, come from Christian families, they already loved the word, he wanted to give them a stronger foundation for their faith. And so he built himself into them and um, taught them all that he knew. Uh, or most of what he knew, I guess, uh, those who trusted um, and treasured the Word of God. The story is told that at the end of one of his classes, now Wilson's an old man, the story is told at the end of one of his classes, a student raised his hand and asked the old scholar, Dr. Wilson, what is the greatest truth you have ever learned in all your studies of the Bible? That's a great question. That's a great question. You would expect a genius like Robert Dick Wilson to say, well, let me tell you about the doctrine of atonement. It's just some of the things God has showed me. Or the doctrine of justification, or this or that, right? Or let me talk to you a little about eschatology, the study of end times things. Dr. Wilson, what is the greatest truth you've ever learned in all your studies of the Bible? As the story goes, the old scholar took his glasses off and with a tear streaming down his cheek, he said, the greatest truth I have ever learned in all my years of studying the Bible, the greatest truth I have ever learned is this, that Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. You don't have to be a great intellect to understand that, right? You don't have to be a scholar to the scholars to grasp that simple truth. That's what he took away. 
If that is your core foundational belief when you come to God's word, I mean, you know, all the doctrine. I know people that sit in coffee shops and debate doctrine for hours every week. You know, a lot of them now don't represent Jesus in the way they love others. Got a lot of head knowledge. If you go to the Bible and you approach it as if it's God's, because it is, it's God's love letter to me, and you read it like that, it's going to transform your life. And again, you don't have to be a theologian to understand that. As I read the Bible, the one thing that should stand out above all the others, God loved me. And he proved it by giving his only begotten son to die for me. If that doesn't transform your life, I don't know what will. And then you take that love that God has for you and you share it with the people of this world, you're going to make an impact in this world for him. The greatest truth in the treasure house of God's word, God loves you. And that's it. It's all you need to know. And as you read the word, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll glean from it important lessons about things, but if the core principle is nailed down, that God loves me not because of me. He loves me in spite of me, oftentimes. That while I was yet his enemy, while I was yet a sinner, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for me. If that doesn't demonstrate how God loves the unlovable, I don't know what does. Embrace that. May that be the truth that you wrap your life around this year. Next week, we are going to get into, since the Bible is being attacked in the area of human sexuality, we'll talk about that. Um, because I want to stand in solidarity with my pastor brothers and uh, tell people what God has really said about human sexuality. And we'll see that next time, God willing. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, thank you that your word doesn't say not any are called. Your word says not many are called who are brilliant to serve you. No, the majority are the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies. Well, I'm reporting for duty. But thank you that you have chosen some who are brilliant beyond brilliance, like a Robert Dick Wilson, to do the research and to lay the groundwork for us to have a stronger faith. We thank you, Lord. We ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.